Please turn into your Bibles to 19, verse 89. Psalm 119, and we'll read verses 89 through 96 this morning. There the word of Christ says this. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today thanking you, Lord, for your word that you have given to us. Lord, your word that is settled in heaven. Lord, that you have given to us such a sure testimony. Lord, an anchor for our soul. Lord, that is steadfast and immovable. That, Lord, we who put our hope in your word, Lord, who believe and trust what you say, Lord, we will not be shaken and we will not be moved. Lord, teach us to put our confidence, Lord, in you and in your word and not in the words of men. Lord, not in those things that come from our own mind or those things that originate on the earth. Lord, knowing that these things have not been settled in heaven, but only your word. So, Lord, teach us today, and we pray that, Lord, this attitude, this desire, this love for the word of Christ, Lord, that it would dwell within us and that, Lord, we would long for your word Lord, more than our daily bread, Lord, that we would desire it more than riches, that it would be sweeter to us, Lord, than honey from the honeycomb. And so, Lord, we pray that you give to us this love and zeal for your word, and it is in Christ in that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the temptations that we must consistently overcome in this present world is being preoccupied with this present temporal life, right? We have to always remember that this present world is passing away and that our present physical life is temporary, it is fleeting, and that there is a life to come that is eternal. We have to live in this present life uh, in preparation for the world to come. We have to live for the life to come and not be fixated and fascinated with this present world. The Apostle John in 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This world is passing away. So if we put our hope in this world, then our hope will pass away. It will be destroyed. It will be no more. It is only the one who does the will of God that will live forever. So this world is passing away, but also we know that the life that we have, even if uh, the world doesn't pass away uh, in our lifetime, we know that we're going to pass away, that this present life is but a vapor. It will soon be over. So the prophet says in Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me know the end, my end, and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths. And my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. This world and this life will soon give way to the world to come and to the life to come. And it is essential that we live in this life in preparation for the life to come that we do not get bogged down by the things of this world, that we do not let this world drown out and smother out our pursuit of heavenly, eternal, spiritual realities. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the problem for many people. They do not seek first the kingdom of God. That is not the first priority of their life but rather they are preoccupied with these other things. They are preoccupied with having a good time in this present world. 
Isn't this what people say? Haven't we heard this? They'll say, well, we only have one life, so we better live it up while we can. They'll say, we better eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we might die. Some will even demean heavenly mindedness as if it is somehow contrary to Christian faithfulness. They will say, well, we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Or if we're too focused on the life to come, then we're not going to be focused on this earth. We won't be thinking about dolphins and we won't be thinking about the rainforest and the horned owls and feeding the poor and pollution, right? We'll just be thinking about the life to come and we won't care about taking care of Mother Earth. They'll say these types of things. We can't take heaven and eternal things too seriously or we're going to miss out on having a good time in this life or we're going to miss out on doing good things in this present world. But this is not the attitude of the prophet, nor is it consistent with the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy apostles. The Bible actually teaches the exact opposite, that the more heavenly minded we are, the more good we're going to do on this earth the better we're going to be for other people, the more beneficial we are for this life. The universal problem of man is not being too heavenly minded. It is not taking spiritual things too seriously, right? It's impossible to take spiritual things too seriously. That's not even a problem. And even if it was a problem, that would not be the problem that you see in man. The problem with man is that they have little to no care or concern for the life to come. They are completely consumed. Even most Christians are completely consumed with this present life, with this present world, with amassing riches and wealth and having a good time and living it up and enjoying pleasures in this life so that they give little to no thought about the world to come. But this is not the attitude of the prophet. And here in this passage, he is teaching us, showing us that we have to live for eternity. We have to live for the life to come. And it is the word of God that enables us and causes us to do these things. So let's look to Psalm 119. We'll pick up in verse 89. There he says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Right? In comparison to the present world, the word of God is fixed. It is eternal. It is settled in heaven. God's word will never be altered. It will never be amended. It cannot be approved and it will never pass away. It is settled perfectly in heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The words of Christ will never pass away. What he has said in his word from Genesis to Revelation It has always been true, and it will always be true. The word of God is an eternal word that is settled in heaven. It lasts forever. The word of Christ is speaking to us concerning eternal issues, issues that have eternal consequences. So we ought to know, what does the Bible say? We should go to the Bible and seek with great fervor and diligence the wisdom found in the Word of God, the content of the Bible. We should want to be acquainted with the Word of God and believe it and live according to its wisdom. Because what the Bible says is settled in heaven. It is eternal and it relates to eternal issues of eternal life and eternal death. This is in contrast with the wisdom of this world. The words of men, they are not settled in heaven, And many times we know even the words of men are not settled on earth, that they change and they fluctuate and they're not fixed, right? Isn't that true? Haven't we seen this in our life? Something which is proclaimed to be true today will, and something that we're told to believe, some value we're told to adopt, some practice that we're told to follow, they'll say, do it this way one day, and then the next day it'll change and it'll be something else. And this is because the words of men are not settled. They are subjected to the whims, the fickleness, the fancies of men. Men are fickle, men are subject to change, and their words are fickle and also subject to change. Didn't we learn that during the raging pandemic of the China virus? One day, don't wear a mask. The next day, you need to wear one. One day, it's you need to quarantine for, for the rest of your life. The next day, it's two months. Then it's two weeks. Then it's five days. One day the science is saying one thing, and the next day the science, so-called science, is saying something else. 
Right? What is this? I thought science was factual. I thought it was something that was fixed and settled. And yet what we saw was that these people were changing on, on a dime. Right? Here one way, here the next day. Nothing was settled. Nothing was fixed. Even the knowledge of things that are beneficial to us in this life, that are useful to us in this life. Even those things don't have eternal consequences. For example, the knowledge as it relates to the human body or the knowledge as it relates to animals and plants and these types of things. The knowledge that some men have related to car engines and how they work and how they uh, run and they're able to fix those things and that's beneficial for us in this life. Right, the knowledge of how to fix an air conditioner, right, which is very beneficial to us in this life. But does that knowledge have eternal consequences? No, it's useful for this present life, but it's not dealing with eternal issues. But the knowledge found in the Word of God, it relates and it's beneficial to us, not only for this present life, but primarily for the life to come. It gives to us knowledge concerning eternal matters so that we might rightly order our life now, so that we might be prepared for the day of judgment, so that we will live in this world for the world to come. So we should take the Bible very seriously, very seriously. We should seek with all of our might to know and understand what the Bible teaches concerning the issues of eternal life. What does the Bible say about heaven? What does the Bible say about hell? What does it say about the day of judgment? What does it say about eternal rewards and eternal punishments? What does it say about the forgiveness of sins? What does it say about the life to come? Don't we need this wisdom? We need this wisdom in order to faithfully live before God. We need this wisdom so that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, we will not be ashamed. And without the word of God, this knowledge of spiritual eternal things, we cannot have access to it. It's only found in the word of God, and we must have this wisdom in order to be prepared for the life to come. The knowledge of the life to come prepares us and causes us to order our life rightly in this present world. And this is why we need to seek the word of God, because it is a eternal word that has been settled in heaven and it teaches us how to prepare for the life to come. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God? And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are God, are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Right there, he says, everyone who has this hope. And according to Romans chapter 8, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, right? Hope has to deal with what life? The life to come. We're hoping for these things. We're waiting for these things. And here in 1 John chapter 3, the hope is that when we see him, we will be like him. We will be transformed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, into the perfect image of Christ, meaning that the flesh will be completely destroyed and that we will be resurrected with a new, glorious spiritual body that cannot and will not ever sin again. Well, do we have that body right now? Are we perfect right now? No. That's something that relates to what life? To the life to come. That's what we'll be in the life to come. But if we have this hope, then what will we do in this life? That's verse 3. Whoever has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When does he purify himself? He purifies himself now. So this knowledge of what we will be in the life to come causes us to purify ourselves in this life in expectation, in preparation of what we will be in the life to come. 
This is what the prophet means here in Psalm 119, right? We have to have this knowledge, this understanding of eternity, of eternal life, of spiritual life, of heaven, and what we will be so that we will conform our lives now to the image of Christ. In the life to come, we will be like Christ. And that knowledge of what we will be is only found in the Bible. It's not found in the world. It's not found in the words of men. It's not found in the philosophies of men. We can only receive this wisdom from the word of God. And that wisdom is not merely informational, but rather it serves a purpose for the here and now. It has implications for our present life that we should purify ourselves even as he is pure and even as we will be pure. That's the way we have to think. We have to think in that way. We have to say, I see what God has done for me. I see that I am a child of God. I know what I will be when I see Christ face to face. I'm going to be perfectly pure in the life to come. And since that's what I'm going to be, then now I'm going to start purifying myself. I'm going to purify myself now in this present life because that's what I'm going to be in the life to come. The eternal has present implications for the way that we live now. This is why we need to be acquainted with the word of God because it's going to transform us in this present life. Verse 90, verses 90 and 91. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. Here, he is recognizing the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God as it relates to this present world and the created order. We can see and know God's faithfulness both for the physical things and for the spiritual things. This is what the prophet is doing. He's recognizing God's faithfulness that is clearly displayed in the physical world in order to draw his mind to meditate upon the faithfulness of God as it relates to the spiritual world, to the world that is unseen. He says God's faithfulness continues throughout all generations. In every generation of man, from Adam until the end of the world, since the very beginning of time, God's faithfulness in creation has been manifested clearly and beneficial to mankind, to animals, to plants, to all living things. All living creatures receive many blessings and many privileges from God for this present life. Isn't this true? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The rain benefits man, it benefits the animals, it benefits the plants, it benefits the trees, it benefits every living thing. The sun shines on the righteous and the wicked. The the sun and the sunlight, right, what it does for the earth, benefits man, it benefits the animals, it benefits the plants, the trees, it benefits all living creatures. The seasons have been established by God. From summer to fall to winter to the spring, these go in progression year after year after year. And for how many years has this been happening on the earth? Since the very beginning, from generation to generation, throughout all generations, the, the earth has been ordered in this way. And are these seasons necessary for the good and for the benefit of the living creatures on the earth? Yes, we have to have those things in order for life to continue. And there's many other examples of the way the world is, the way the world works that has been established by God that shows and displays the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. The earth and the various natural laws that God has ordained to govern the earth, these things have been established by God. And they stand generation after generation as a testimony from God of his faithfulness to the world, to his creation, to what he has given life. Natural law, the laws that govern the natural physical world. These things are not the result of evolution. They are not the result of chance. They did not come about by impersonal forces, but rather these were divinely established laws divine ordinances of God that he put in place to govern the world for the benefit of man and of all living creatures. And when we see the faithfulness of God daily displayed in the physical world, 
Don't we see that every day? Does the sun shine every day? Doesn't it rise every day? And then it sets, and we see this order that God has established. In how many days of our life has the sun risen? Every single day. And as long as this world continues, it will do that till the end of our life. Right? We see all of these things that are happening in the world daily displaying to us the faithfulness of God. And when we see that, it shouldn't stop with the physical world, but it should lead us to ponder, to meditate, and to think about the spiritual world. If God is so good and God is so faithful to provide for the physical world, then will he not provide the things I need for my soul, for my salvation, for the spiritual world as well? When we see the goodness of God in the world, we ought to be convinced that God is a good God, that God is a faithful God, that God is a God who blesses mankind, and that we should seek from him those spiritual blessings that he says are beneficial for us, that he says that we need for our soul. We ought to seek the spiritual. The physical draws us to the spiritual. Seek the spiritual according to the will of God. So what does God say about the life to come? What does God say are the spiritual blessings that I need in order to be blessed? How do I obtain these blessings from God? These are the things that we ought to be thinking about every day when we look at the physical world. I see how God has provided for my physical life. I see the goodness of God displayed every day in creation. Well, I want that same goodness for my spiritual life. I want it for my soul as well as my body. I need to rise above this present world, use the present world and the faithfulness of God manifested every day in so many ways to cause me to seek the spiritual blessings from God. I eat every day. God provides my daily bread for my body. Well, shouldn't we then seek daily bread for our soul? The sun rises on us and brings its warmth and its heat to us every day for our bodies. Well, don't we want the sun of righteousness to rise with healing in his wings and shine upon us and let us see the glory of Christ in that? According to Malachi, he says so. This is the way that we ought to think and the way that we ought to operate. But in order to do this, we have to be spiritually minded, right? The spiritual has to be at the forefront of our mind. Then when we see the physical, it will lead us to the spiritual, but a person who's just consumed with this world, he might see those things and recognize it, but it never leads him to contemplate and meditate on spiritual realities. Acts chapter 17. This is what the, prophet, or the apostle does in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, He says that the goodness of God in creation should lead men to seek for God. Acts 17, 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent." Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There he says in verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. For what purpose? That they would seek him. 
if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. There, the goodness of God in creation should lead men to seek him. Now, he's not saying that men can do this because men cannot do this on their own, through their own natural abilities. But because of creation, this is what should result. Men should seek God instead of worshiping their foolish idols. <coughs> the physical, the creation, the goodness of God should lead to men seeking God for spiritual things. Now, it doesn't do that with unbelievers. But we are not unbelievers. We are professing to be children of God. We are those who say that our eyes have been opened. So this should be true of us. When we recognize and see the goodness of God in relation to physical things, it should lead us to seek for him for the spiritual. Psalm 119, verse 92. It says, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. If God's law had not been his delight, his love of God's word, this is what sustained him and comforted him in his afflictions. <coughs> he was reading, studying, hearing, meditating, memorizing the word of God. And he says, had I not been doing these things, I would have perished in my affliction. Many people die prematurely because they cannot handle, they do not have the proper perspective concerning the hardships of life. Isn't this true? People go through hardships in life. Even unbelievers go through difficulties and hardships in life. And many of them will die prematurely. They will perish in the midst of their affliction. Some <laughs> because they turn to the bottle. Some people will turn to drugs as a way of coping with these things. Other people will kill themselves. They'll commit self-murder because they don't know how to deal with the hardships of life. They perish in the midst of their afflictions because they cannot handle these things that are happening to them. Right? They don't want anything to do with life because their afflictions overwhelm them. They're only thinking about this life. They're consumed with misery. And so long uh, as this is happening to them, they want to die. They want to perish so that they don't have to deal with their hardships and their afflictions. They have no hope, no joy, no peace, no comfort. Nothing to console them <clears throat> as they face the afflictions of life. Miserable in life, miserable in death, and then miserable for all eternity. Isn't this what was true of Judas Iscariot? His guilt, the knowledge of his sin, and he had no hope, no comfort, because he wasn't going to the word of God. So he went and he took his own life. But this is not what was true of the prophet David. He had many severe afflictions, many afflictions that would have led many other people to want to kill themselves. But in his case, he was not overwhelmed by them. And what was his source of strength? What gave him the ability to overcome his afflictions when there are so many others who perish in the midst of their afflictions? Well, he says the word of God. Had your word not been my delight, I would have perished in my afflictions. He's commending to us the word of God. He is testifying to us, the prophet David. And we know that we can trust him. We know that he has a good testimony. He's telling us, this is what would have happened to me. I would have perished in my afflictions had I not hoped in the word of God. Had I not delighted in the word of God. Well, do we want to perish in our afflictions? Do we want hope for this life? Do we want to overcome our afflictions? Then we have to be like David. We must delight in the law of the Lord. And how long should we delight in it? Notice verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. He has this experience that he knows to be true. This experience of his afflictions and the word of God and how it comforted him and revived him and strengthened him during his affliction, and it gives him more confidence, more resolve that he's never going to forget the word of God. What the word of God declares to be true has been manifested and proven in his life over and over and over again. For the word of God is a source of life. 
And this is what he knows to be true. He knows it not only because the Bible tells us this is true, he also knows it because he's seen it in his own life. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. What gives us life at the very beginning of our salvation, at our conversion? Well, it's the word of God. We are born again by the word of God. The spirit of God uses the word of God to cause us to be born again. God's word gave him life at his conversion. Now, God's word has sustained his life in his afflictions. The life-giving power of the word of God has been proven to him over and over again. He sees the goodness of the word of God, and so he's resolved. He says, I'm never going to forget your precepts. He's determined to never forget the precepts of God because it is through God's precepts that God has revived him. So he has this desire for the word of God. Whether it's good times or bad times, whether it's sickness or health, whether poverty or wealth, whether peace or afflictions, it doesn't matter. He has resolved to never forget the precepts of God because they are his source of spiritual life and well-being. And this is how we have to be as well. Why would we ever forsake the Lord? Why would we turn away from God? Why would we neglect the word of God, seeing all of the good that comes from the word of God in our lives? seeing that the word of God is what gave us life at the beginning, and it is the word of God that continues to sustain our life throughout the time of our sojourning. Right? If there's someone who has a terminal illness, and there's a medicine that he has to take every day to, that will give him life, is he going to forget to take his medicine? Is he going to neglect that, knowing that his life is dependent upon it? Of course not. Well, then isn't this true of us? Isn't that true of us spiritually? Our life is dependent on the word of God. So how can we neglect, how could we ever forget the precepts of God? I know, and you know, what God has done for us. We know how good God has been to us. We see how God has blessed us through his word. So how can we forget it? How can we neglect it? How can we give priority to the things of this world over the word of God? This should never be the case. Verse 94 says, I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Here he acknowledges who God is to him and who he is to God. I am yours. He means this not merely in the sense of creation, right? There is a sense when all things, all things belong to God. The earth and its fullness all belong to the Lord but he doesn't mean it in that sense. He means it in the sense of redemption, in the sense of new creation. I am yours. I belong to you, God. I'm a part of your family. I am your child. I am one of your sheep. I belong to you. You have redeemed me. You have saved me. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, he means it in this sense. 31 verses 33 and 34. Verses 33 says, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what the prophet David means here when he says, I am yours. I belong to you. You are my God, and I am one of your people, one of those that belong to you. Also, Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. 
95 verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. There, we are his people, we are the sheep of his hand. He is our God. This is what the prophet David means here. I am one of your people, and you are my God. I am your sheep, you are my shepherd, I am your child, and you are my father. Now, if that is true of us, if we have this possession, this title, if we can say this, right, which is a very bold thing to say, right? I am yours. I belong to you. But he's saying this truthfully. And all of those who have believed in Christ and turned away from their sin, they also have this right. They also have this claim that they can make. They can say as well that I belong to God, that I am yours and you are mine. Well, if this is true of us, then what else matters in life? If God is our God, then what else do we need? What other riches do we need? What other possessions do we need? What are we lacking if we have God as our God? If he is our shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. Everything we need for our eternal destiny is secured if that is true of us. This is what we should desire and long for. I am yours, he says. And then notice, save me. He says, he cries out to God, because I belong to you, God, because you are my God and you are for me and not against me, then I'm going to go to him and cry out to him a very simple yet effective prayer. Save me. Save me. I am saved, but I want to continue to see your salvation in my life daily, over and over and over again. I want you to sanctify me. I want you to deliver me. And ultimately, I want you to save me on the day of Christ. Give me the outcome of my faith, which is the salvation of my soul. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, the ultimate outcome of the faith that God has granted to us by his spirit is our full and final salvation. This salvation has already begun in the life of the believer. He has begun the good work of salvation. This salvation is being advanced in our life through our sanctification, and this salvation will be brought to its perfection or completion on the day of Christ when we see him face to face. God has already begun the good work of salvation in David's life, but it has not been brought to its full and final completion. So David is pleading with God to advance his salvation. Save me. Let me see more and more of your salvation in my life. Deliver me from my sin. Deliver me from this world. Deliver me from my enemies. Save me, Lord, in all of these ways. And what is the basis for his confidence in this prayer? Notice what he says. For I have sought your precepts. Now here, he's not teaching works-based salvation. He's not saying, God, I sought your precepts, therefore you owe me salvation. You owe this to me because I have sought your precepts. And he's not demanding that God give him this as a result of his good works. But rather, he is presenting this as the evidence that he truly is a child of God. Only a true child of God has this right. Only a true child of God can say, I am yours. Only they can cry out to God for God to save them in this way. And what is the evidence that he is a true child of God, that he's not a false convert, he's not a false believer, he's not a stillborn child, but he is a true living child? I have sought your precepts. The proof that God has begun the good work of salvation in him. For only a true child of God seeks God's precepts. Do unbelievers seek the precepts of God? Do stillborn children seek the precepts of God? No, they will not do this. An unbeliever, they may want to be delivered from the fires of hell, but he does not want to be delivered from his sin. He wants salvation from the consequences of sin, but he doesn't want salvation from the presence of sin. 
He wants to indulge in sin, and he uses his so-called salvation as a pretext and a pretense to commit more sin, to indulge in more sin, to sin without any consequences. But a true child of God doesn't think in this way. A child of God wants to be delivered not only from hell, but also from what brings about hell. And what is it that brings about hell? It's sin. He wants to be saved from sin and all of its consequences, from the presence of sin, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. He hates sin. He wants to live a godly life. He wants to follow God's precepts. That's why he's saying this, I have sought your precepts, not as the basis for his salvation, but as the fruit, the manifestation of his salvation. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a duplicitous man. He wants salvation in the true sense, from sin and from the penalty of sin in all of its ways. And this is the way that we should be as well. Do we want to be delivered from our sin? We must want and desire deliverance from sin. Verse 95, the wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Hasn't it been true that in nearly every section of Psalm 119, there's some statement about the wicked, the arrogant man doing something to him, setting traps for, <coughs> for, for him, digging pits for him, wanting to destroy him, forging a lie against him? He's constantly talking about these enemies that he has that are wanting to destroy him. And this is because this is a common experience of the righteous. When we live a righteous life, this will be true of us. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And why is this the case? <clears throat> because this world does not know God. The world does not know Christ. The world does not know the people of God. But rather, the world hates. They hate God, they hate Christ, and they hate his people. And who does he belong to? Well, he just said, I belong to God. I am yours. But they're not of God. They don't belong to God. Therefore, they hate him, and they want to destroy him. Notice what Jesus says in John 15. John 15, verses 18 to 25. <clears throat> this is why this is the case. John 15, 18 to 25. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you uh, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Right? The world hates you. Right? And he's giving them comfort, saying, don't think that this is unique to you, but know this. It hated me before it hated you. Right? The hatred the world has for Christ, this is the basis, the reason the world hates us. That is the cause and the effect. The cause is because they hate Christ, and the result is then they're going to hate you as well because we don't belong to the world. We belong to Christ. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The world loves its own people, and they would love us if we belong to the world. But because we're not of the world, then the world hates you. This is the way it has been. This is the way it will always be. This was the case with David. And if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, this was the basis for Cain's hatred of Abel. Cain belonged to the world, but Abel did not. Abel belonged to God. And as a result, Cain hated Abel because Abel was righteous and Cain was a wicked man. Well, this is happening to David as well. The wicked hate him because of this, and they want to destroy him. They hate him because they hate his God. They hate him because they hate his Christ. They hate him because he's not living for this world the way they do. He's living for the world to come. They hate him because he is seeking God's precepts. He wants to live a godly life, and they can't stand it. It, it convicts them. It bothers them. It pricks their conscience when they see his godly life. And so what do they want to do? 
They want to destroy him. They're looking for some opportunity to destroy him. Whether that be literally to kill him and put him to death, or whether that be figuratively to cause him to sin and somehow ruin his testimony. But we should not fear them. For God will deliver us. He will deliver us from all of their evil plots and plans. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 26, Do not fear them. Do not fear them. Even though they want to destroy you, do not fear them. That's what Jesus tells us that we should do in the face of our enemies that want to destroy us. Do not fear man who can only destroy our body. But instead, we should fear God, and the fear of God should lead us to diligently consider God's testimonies. They wait for me to destroy me, but I will wait for God. I will seek his testimonies, which will give me hope in this life. It will remind me that God will deliver me from all of my enemies. They may seek to destroy me, and even if they do, the worst they can do to me is they can kill my body. But they cannot touch my soul, and ultimately, God will destroy them. So I'm going to seek God even as they seek to destroy me. Verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Here, David is comparing what he sees in this life, even in his own life, to God's commandments. What is true in terms of what he sees in this world is he says, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Meaning that in this life, in his observance of the world, whatever gifts, whatever talents, whatever beauty, whatever knowledge exists in the world, there is always a limit to these things, a limit to all perfection in this world. Even in terms of David, who was an immensely gifted man as a musician, as a poet, as a ruler, as a judge, as a diplomat, as a warrior. How many people in the history of the world have had all of those talents found in one person? Usually, typically, one person is proficient in just one area. But David was proficient in all of these areas. A very gifted, a very skilled, a very accomplished man. And in his life, he performed many acts of excellence, many acts of truth, of righteousness. Yet whatever he sees in his own life and whatever he sees in the life of others, there is a limit to all of these things. He has a measure of righteousness. He has a measure of wisdom, a measure of knowledge, a measure of faith. But it's limited. There is a limit to what he possesses. But what about the commandments of God? In the commandment of God, there is no limit to perfection. He says God's commandments are exceedingly broad. In terms of myself, it's very limited. But in terms of God's commandment, they are exceedingly broad in all of their perfections because where do the commandments come from? They come from God. And does God have a limit to his perfections? No. His perfections are without limit. His knowledge is without limit. His wisdom is without any limitations. He has all of these things in perfection. Perfect wisdom, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, perfect goodness, perfect knowledge. All of these are found with God. And then God has deposited his wisdom, his knowledge, his justice, his righteousness. Where is it found in this world? It's in the word of God. It's in the Bible. This is why he says the commandments are exceedingly broad. David is comparing himself and this world where there is limits to the commandments of God, which are exceedingly broad. There is no limit to the perfections of God. Romans chapter 11. This is how the Apostle Paul concludes his doctrinal section of the book of Romans by praising and extolling the wisdom of God. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. That's not true of any man. With any man, their ways are searchable. We can come to an end of those things. But we cannot come to an end of God. We cannot fathom everything there is to know about God. We need to compare ourselves to God and see that we are lacking and God is not. And then that should motivate us to go to Him and seek His wisdom. Don't we do this in this world? We do this with men, right? We did that as children on the playground. When you're choosing teams, you see one and you know he's athletic and this other guy can barely walk straight. Who do you want on your team? Or you want the good one, right? You want this one who's going to help you win, right? At least if you're smart. You don't want this dud over here. And we do that even in adulthood. We see that one person is more proficient in one thing. And then whenever we need wisdom, we need understanding, we need knowledge, we go to that person and we find out what he knows because he's going to help us and be beneficial to us. We make comparisons in this way, and then in that way, we're able to make it through life. Well, we need to do that between God and us as well. God has more knowledge than me. God has more wisdom than me. God has more power than me. God has life in himself, and I do not. God is eternal, and I am temporal. Whatever I possess that is good, it has a limit to it, but God has no limits to all of his perfections. His ways are inscrutable. His wisdom and his knowledge are perfect. So why would I trust my own judgments? Why would I trust the judgments, the opinions, the wisdom of other men who are finite, who are limited, when I can go to the infinite God who has no limitations and I can learn wisdom, knowledge, and understanding from him? No man on earth has the power to forgive sins. No man on earth can raise another man from the dead. But who can? God can. No man knows what is going to happen after death. Even the ones who say that they do, they don't know anything. False religions don't know what's going to happen. But who does know what's going to happen after death? Who does know what's going to happen on the day of judgment? Who does know what there is in the life to come? God knows all of these things. So who should I go to? to get my wisdom? Who should I go to as my source of knowledge and understanding? I should go to God. And where does God give this information, this knowledge, this wisdom to me? What is its source in this life? The commandment. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. The wisdom of God is found in the word of God. And there it is our source of peace, of comfort, of assurance, so that we can prepare now in this life for the life to come. And we can have confidence and know for certain that the word of God will never steer us wrong. And God's not going to change his mind. It's not going to be one thing one day, and then he's going to change it the other day. Because his word is what? It's settled in heaven. It is forever. It is eternal. And it will not change. So we have a source of wisdom that is perfect, that is fixed, that is immovable, and we can build our life upon this wisdom and know that we will not be disappointed. God's not going to pull the rug out from under us on the day of judgment. But we can have confidence and know that if we go to God and if we build our life on the wisdom found in his word, that we will have a wisdom that will prepare us for the life to come. It says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths may grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We all know this to be true. We experience it in our life. Even youths 
they grow weary and tired. Even young men in the prime of life grow weary and tired. How much more old men that the prime of life is over. We grow weary and tired just when we get out of bed in the morning. We start out weary and tired, right? Because our backs are hurting. But what about those who wait for the Lord, right? They will have strength. They will have a source of strength and of comfort that will last them, not only for this life, but ultimately for the life to come. They will never grow tired and weary. For all eternity, they will be sustained by God. That's what we need. That's the hope that we need. A hope that transcend this, transcends this present world and that goes with us into the life to come. And this is what we should seek. And the only place we can find this is found in the word of God. So we should diligently seek God's wisdom from God's word in order to prepare us to live this life for the life to come. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that you have given to us. Lord, a wisdom that is far beyond human comprehension. Lord, we acknowledge and admit, Lord, that we are lacking. Lord, we lack in the abilities. Lord, we lack in the, spiritual, the spirituality, Lord, the understanding necessary. Lord, to even comprehend your word. Lord, without your spirit, we cannot even come to the right conclusions. Lord, we have no access to it on our own. And Lord, we would not understand it without your spirit. But Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Lord, you have spoken. Lord, by your spirit, through your prophets, and through your apostles. And Lord, these holy men who were led by your spirit have recorded for us and written for us the perfect word of God. And Lord, we have it delivered to us. Lord, we have it bound for us even. Lord, we have it even in ways that we can carry it in our pockets all day, every day. Lord, access to the very wisdom of God. Lord, we thank you as well that you have given your spirit to us. Lord, knowing that there are many people who have been exposed to the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible. But Lord, we want to be true believers. Lord, we want to be those who not only hear the word outwardly, but more importantly, we want to hear it inwardly. Lord, we want our spiritual eyes to be open and our spiritual ears to be attentive to your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us a heart to understand. Lord, we also confess that, Lord, if there is any failing and shortcoming, Lord, in terms of our wisdom and knowledge, it is because of our own neglect, Lord, our own laziness, Lord, because we're not being diligent to seek your word. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in your word. So, Lord, if we are lacking in something, it is not your fault, it is our own because we are not diligently seeking your word. Lord, help us to overcome our flesh. Lord, the spirit is willing within us, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is lazy. Lord, the flesh is preoccupied with this world. But Lord, we pray that we would fight against this and that, Lord, we would see that this world is passing away along with its lust, and it's only the one who does the will of God who will live forever. Lord, may we not be so preoccupied with this world Lord, that we neglect and forsake the spiritual, Lord, the world to come. Lord, give us the ability to live now. Lord, we know that we have to live now. Lord, we know that there are things that we have to do to provide for our own physical life and to provide for our wives and our children. But Lord, we don't want to be so consumed with this world that we neglect the greater part, Lord, which is the world to come. So, Lord, may we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and then trust you, Lord, to provide all the things that we need for this life, Lord, even as we are faithful to do what you've called us to do. And, Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith and, Lord, give us a greater longing and a greater desire for your word. Lord, may we see that your word is settled in heaven, that, Lord, in this life there is a limit to all perfection, but your word, Lord, is exceedingly broad. Lord, your perfections are without any end. Lord, your wisdom, 
your knowledge. These things are inscrutable. Your judgments are, Lord, we cannot even search them out, the end of those things. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us all that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we pray that you would, again, give us a heart to love you, Lord, a desire, a longing, Lord, this craving for the word of God. Lord, that we would love it and long for it, Lord, more than the things of this world. And Lord, cause this longing to increase within us, Lord, day after day, year after year, throughout the remainder of our life. And Lord, help us to live now in preparation for the life to come. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.